Danger Close was conceived from the beginning as a community-driven project, for fans, by fans. So we've done our best to be pretty transparent about most of our inner workings. However, the one question we get most often is the one question we have been the most reluctant to answer, and that is, how do you guys pick your lineup? We aren't being coy when we duck this question, but we know that answering with a shrugging emoji is probably getting a little frustrating at this point, so it's time to come clean. The reason for our reluctance is that we really don't know what the shit we're doing. I mean, beyond trying to talk it out amongst ourselves with openness, thoughtfulness, and inclusivity, we don't really have what you'd call a selection process at this point. That might conjure the absurd image of the podcasting equivalent of a gathering of Quaker elders, but I personally like to think of it as creating a mixtape. For those of you who went through puberty in the 80s and 90s and had their sexual awakening in the age of the cassette, you probably remember all of the effort you put into curating the perfect mixtape for your beloved so-and-so, hoping to find the ultimate combination of songs to perfectly express your feelings, project in their imagination the coolest version of yourself, and in the end, win their love. It's like that, but we're the awkward teenager in this scenario, you, the audience, are the object of our affection, and this podcast is our mixtape. Is this weird now? I made it weird, didn't I? Well, weirdness aside, the advantage of not having a selection process totally nailed down is that it frees us up to try new things. You may have noticed a running theme in the past few episodes, and that's not entirely by accident. We had toyed with the idea of trying little mini-serieses miniseries? Miniseries of thematically, artistically, or stylistically linked films every so often. And when the audience poll resulted in Jojo Rabbit following our episode on Grave of the Fireflies, now seemed as good a time as any to give it a try. So allow me to belatedly welcome you to the first Danger Close miniseries, World War II Through a Child's Eyes. Which brings us to today's film. Steven Spielberg won two Oscars for Best Director within five years of each other in the 1990s, during a period I like to call Spielberg Act Two, wherein our intrepid hero, having already reminded us that movies should be fun following the dour cynicism of the 1970s new Hollywood auteurs, decides instead to instruct us in the ways that movies can also be important. This, of course, before moving on to Act Three, where he realizes money is awesome and art is dumb. But I'm actually talking about the future Spielberg of the past, because the subject of today's episode is the Spielberg of the late 1980s, or Spielberg Act 1, Scene 2, who had just dipped his toe into, quote, serious filmmaking, with 1985's The Color Purple, which would have the dubious distinction of being nominated for 11 Oscars and walking away with absolutely none of them. Luckily for young Steven, it's an honor just to be nominated, or so we're told. Much to his credit, rather than licking his wounds while looking for the nearest bridge like I probably would have done, Spielberg dusted himself off and got back on the horse, releasing a war epic based on a novel that was based on a true story of a British schoolboy struggling to survive a Japanese prison camp in China. If that sounds convoluted and confusing, the historical events it centers on are even more so. This is a theater of World War II that doesn't get a lot of play on the big screen. And this film depicts it pretty well, if perhaps with a slightly limited context. It also gives us a perfect example of how good an actor John Malkovich was before John Cusack made puppets have sex in his brain. I haven't seen that movie, but I'm pretty sure that's the plot. And it introduced the world to future Batman and Oscar winner Christian Bale, who was a better actor at 12 than most movie stars are in their prime. 
And for all those who cling to the peak Spielbergy greatness of Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, the DNA for both can be found in this often overlooked effort from 1987, Empire of the Sun. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome everyone to another episode of Danger Close. We're on episode seven and today we're going to talk about uh, Steven Spielberg 1987 war film Empire of the Sun. Uh, my name is Dan and I am here with my partners. Katie. Liam. And Katie's here to start us off with our mission briefing. Empire of the Sun is based on a semi-autobiographical novel by sci-fi author J.G. Ballard and written by playwright Tom Stoppard. He's probably best known for his screenwriting with Brazil and Shakespeare in Love. He's done a ton of other plays that I, I can bet Liam could tell us all about in detail. So the film didn't start out with Spielberg directing. Originally, when Warner Brothers bought this, they it was a book released in, I believe, 1984. And it was a huge hit. Warner Brothers bought the film rights. And their initial idea was to have Harold Becker direct it and then David Lean. And then finally, David Lean passed it on to Spielberg. But despite that, Spielberg was very passionate about this project and was excited to direct it. As a child, he was a big fan of Bridge on the River Kwai. And this story, he said, resonated with him in the same way. Oddly enough, the film didn't do too well initially, possibly because it came out uh, when theaters were bursting with great films. Two release opposites were Wall Street and The Last Emperor. Some critics found the film to be cold and heartless, really disliking Bale's character in particular, but everybody praised Bale's performance. Others found it too sentimental and weepy, so it, it was a very all-over-the-place kind of interpretation. Most of them, however, praised the storytelling and found the film struck a good balance between being shot from Jim's perspective, while also alluding to the fact that his is a very skewed perspective. It was released on Christmas Day in 1987, and Empire of the Sun was obviously meant to be an Oscar hit, and it garnered several nominations, all of which below the line, meaning not director, actor, screenplay, that type of thing. But it did get art direction, cinematography, score, and a few others. But it didn't win any of them. <laughs> so the budget was about $25 million, which is quite a lot in 1987 film money. And all of that money is up there on the screen, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But initially in the US, it only grossed about $22 million. Thankfully, it was pretty popular overseas. And eventually, the final box office returns were about 66. Christian Bale had been in other films and plays before this, but Empire of the Sun was his breakout role. While I was watching it, I had such a hard time separating this performance from his later work. Like, I would see him make a particular face, and I was like, oh, I've seen him do that in The Machinist or Batman or whatever. I'm not wearing hockey pants. How did you guys feel as you're watching it? Were you able to separate yourselves from Bale's previous stuff, or how did you react? 
That's a good question. I didn't struggle to do it, but I have mixed feelings about Christian Bale. I've, I feel like I've, I feel like I've read things where he's just can be kind of a dick in real life to other fellow actors and to people and, and, and whatever. I'm not going to throw away someone's performance because of stuff like that, unless they're just a monster, but you know, I can set things aside. You know, there's things about Tom Cruise's personal life that aren't my favorites, but like I still watch his performances and rate his performance as an actor. And I do the same thing with Bale. Um, and, you know, I had issues with his Batman voice and some of the choices they made in that film, but it's still like one of the best Batman performances ever, you know, and you have to admit that when you look at the, um, the previous works. But, um, I mean, I bought him as a 13-year-old, and I was able... I, I think after the first 10 or 15 minutes of seeing his face, I kind of got used to it, and so I didn't really think about it too much. Uh, if anything, I think, like you talk about in uh, contemporary reviews, he's not a super endearing character. Like, he's a survivor, but he goes from being a super spoiled, annoying, rich kid to being a super annoying... Uh, opportunistic like camp kid and he just doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities as a character it's just kind of like he's the vessel you're viewing this story towards but I felt like just constantly I was having a hard time relating to him and yeah so I, I have more to say about that but I'll leave it at that in terms of getting used to Christian Bale it wasn't for me it wasn't so much getting used to Christian Bale it was getting used to his character I didn't have any problem adjusting to young Christian Bale because I saw this not when it first came out, but I remember I saw this in the early nineties on video. Um, and it was maybe the second thing I'd seen Christian Bale in. Um, he was in a, uh, a, a made for TV. Like it was a TNT made for TV film of treasure Island. Mm. uh shortly thereafter uh, well maybe like a few years after he, he looked like he was maybe 15 possibly um but i mean that if you can find that it's really good you can sometimes still find it on dvd but uh speaking of problematic actors you have to separate uh it has charlton heston as long john silver such is my name to be sure but the cast is phenomenal like it's got uh uh Christopher Lee plays Blind Pew and oh Oliver God. Reed plays Billy Bones and Julian Glover is Dr. Livesey. Um, Pete Postlewaite is in it. And um, wow. and the music is done by the Chieftains, which anybody who's into Irish folk music knows like the Chieftains are kind of the creme de la creme. But uh, yeah, the, the film is fantastic. The music is wonderful. Uh, really good adaptation with really good production value. And it was the first thing I saw Christian Bale in. Um, so seeing him in this, uh, I've seen this movie many times and, uh, I've seen it so long that, you know, I would be more likely to see Christian Bale in something now and recognize something that he did in empire of the sun rather than the other way around. Um, but yeah, he's, he is, I am, I am a huge Christian Bale fan. Uh, I, he, he went through a rough period as I think Dan, what I think you were referring to, um, where there was 
Uh, and, and I don't know if anybody knows all the details, but it was when he was making Terminator Salvation. Was that the one he was in? I think uh, so. And there was uh, apparently the, the set was not an, it, it, I don't know if it was just that day, but might not have been a very pleasant place to be. Um, and he uh, kind of snapped and berated this guy on set who kept like walking through sight lines where he wasn't supposed to be. That's uh, right. McG, McG, he's in and, my light. And, and yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where like, it sounds really bad, but if you've, if you've been through, um, even in theater, if you've been through a long tech rehearsal where it's like, you're trying to do something on stage, but, uh, they keep having to stop for the lights. And then like one more little thing happens and you're just kind of like fucking done. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me. But there was also reports at the time of like him having public confrontations with his mother and sister, who I guess he's had like a falling out with. Yes. Um, I don't know all of the details there, but it sounds like all of these things kind of happened at the same time where it sounded like dude was having a bad year personally and professionally. Um, that I think just probably got more media attention than it probably should have. Oh, you know what? There's really nothing I can say about that that I, that I haven't said already. And uh, you know, I I, uh, I I I have never tried to make any excuses for it. It was unacceptable, and I, I take it uh, you know it's my fault. That's but it. no, I think he's I think he's a fantastic actor. And he even when I saw this as a little kid, I was blown away by it. Um, and maybe because I saw it when I was around his character's age. Uh, I never had a problem getting on board with him. I thought he was a spoiled, he was a spoiled little brat in the beginning. Like when oh, he was, yeah. when he's riding around the yard with a toy actually on fire. On the one hand, I was like, that kid is terrible. What a terrible <laughs> little child that is, says Liam is a terrible little child. Um, but more than that, I was like, he, he has bad parents. Like his father is right there and he does not care that he set that toy on fire. You know, that's, that's how my brain processed that as a child. But, um, no, I think he goes through a really interesting character arc, but you know, he starts off as that like pampered privileged kid and he is very quickly disabused of all of his illusion of power and luxury. Um, and unfortunately there are times that he swings too far to the other way. Uh, as far as like doing what he needs to do to survive. But I think that by the end of it, he really has sort of come around to being a good person. Yeah, I think I understood the criticisms of the film feeling kind of cold because in certain ways it does feel detached. But and I think part of that is due to Bale's character and people's inability to empathize with him because he's such a spoiled brat from the beginning. But I also think that that also feels very realistic, like a rich British expat kid. Like he's not going to be nice. 12 year olds are rarely nice. I have a 13 year old, so I can say this, but right. he, he really does that well. And I don't need my main character to be likable. I can enjoy watching a movie about someone who I wouldn't want to hang out with go through this incredibly difficult experience and 
Bale just knocks it out of the park. And I just felt like that was a very uncharitable reading of him when people would say that, that it was, he just wasn't interesting. It's like, well, he is interesting. He's just not a, you know, plucky, young, likable go-getter. You know, he's just he's, a prick. Yeah. he's And he takes advantage of everything he can in his circumstances, which is the only reason that he survives all of that. Because anybody else would have unfortunately died because war is brutal. And especially when you're a child. Oh, and I also think that as far as the detached nature of the filmmaking goes, um, I think it just has a very, for something from Steven Spielberg, this has a very British stiff upper lip kind of feel to it. Uh, and especially when you see the, the section when they're going to the Christmas party and all of those cars are going to the same costume the same costume Christmas party and you have like kids who are dressed as clowns. Yeah. And literally Marie Antoinette. I saw I that. I did <laughs> notice driving that. like or in the back of this, this limousine, uh, slowly making their way through a checkpoint of refugees. And she looks super worried. And just the disconnect there is, is staggering. As far as like, you know, what these people think life is and what life is for people who are literally on the other side of the glass. Yeah, good catch. I was really paying attention in that beginning sort of fleeing scene, which was really well done, by the way. I felt really immersed in that scene. Like it really felt real. It didn't feel like a set. It didn't feel fake. Everything felt authentic. And it was terrifying not in that, like, oh, shit, I might die type of terror, but really in the, what if you were a 13-year-old boy and all of this was going on, and then all of a sudden you're, like, losing track of your parents, there's this crowd, people are possibly getting trampled, falling downstairs. Like, it just had a very realistic feel to it. I really appreciated how they put that whole scene together. It was very, very believable. Oh, and I think that the people, that group of people falling down the stairs on top of each other as they're trying to leave the hotel, like say what you want about Steven Spielberg. And I do. <laughs> of course you do, Liam. But, um, when it comes to like little nuances like that, like that extra little touch that, uh, sort of cements the realism or adds an element of danger to a scene, the man really knows his work in those instances. He does. And I think one of the biggest things about that beginning scene is how much loss you see Christian Bale go through and like the hits just keep coming, you know, and I thought he has that little silver airplane, which is really in some ways the catalyst for everything because he drops that and he lets go of his mother's hand to pick it up and therefore loses her in the crowd. And he keeps that all the way through up until that very last, uh, is that when they're walking, when they're being marched through and he finally just throws it in the river, I think. And he yeah, lets it remember. go. I think he, he lets it go along with everything else that he's kept throughout the war. And it's just so, it's a powerful moment because you know without a doubt that when he Let's go of his mother's hand. It's over. 
you know, that they're, they are now severed and you never know up until, of course, the end of the movie, whether or not they're going to be reunited. Yeah. So I think instead of waiting 45 minutes the way we usually do to kind of set the stage and talk about what the hell is going on in the context of this film, we should maybe dip into the history briefly and talk about what's going on at this point in sort of um, not just World War II, but the peripheries of pre-World War II imperialism, etc. Um, yeah, because it's all this is a super interesting point and like a perspective that we don't see all the time yes. uh, in, in war films. Yeah, and, and certainly a theater even that hasn't been explored that much. I mean, if you even going back to um, you know, nineteenth century British colonies in China, uh Hong Kong, all of that history, um, the Boxer Rebellion, which the Marine Corps was like deployed to and famously I think Dan Daly, who was famous in World War One, like fought in the Boxer Rebellion. Like, I don't know that much about that either. Um, so I'd never seen this film either. And so uh, in doing research, I was reading up on, of course, some of what Katie's covering, which, by the way, I mean, a part of me will never want to not want to see the David Lean version of this film. Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, right? How could you not? The it's crazy just... thing is, is Spielberg and Spielberg was brought on as the producer when he directed it. And Lean was like, it just felt too much like a diary for me and so i didn't i and I, I knew steve wanted to do it so i just passed it on to him so it was a very amicable thing but yeah i would love to see that version as well yeah the lawrence of arabia version of empire of the sun <laughs> and that's great because i remember exactly in the extras from the big dvd of lawrence of arabia um spielberg was one of the lucky talented people who got to like give interviews about david lean and about his filmmaking and and just like many anybody else that's in film but for spielberg david lean was a huge influence and a huge inspiration so how how cool and how big a weight he must have had making this film when it's like your if not mentor certainly someone in your profession you really look up to just pats you on the back and says hey you take it steve you know well and this yeah. is also pre pre oscar winning pre schindler's list pre jurassic park like this is yep. this is Right uh, after The Color Purple. That was yeah. his movie just uh, before this. This is probably Steven Spielberg the last time uh, he was capable of doubting himself. That's a good was point. Was probably this period. Yeah, and, and we'll talk more about Spielberg later. I definitely have some things to say about sort of the hand of the director and the Spielberg feel to some of these scenes. And the editing. I don't know. I haven't looked into who did the editing, but I have some comments about that later. Anyways. So there's a long history of the British in China and Sino-Japanese wars between, there was two of them between the Chinese and the Japanese. And, you know, the China that we know nowadays, that is this world power that's building aircraft carriers and controls, um, you know, is taking over sort of like islands in the area. And they're like becoming one of the top superpowers in the world was not the China of World War II and before. Um, we're talking about a really rural agrarian society that did not have the buildup of technology that the Japanese did. So when the Japanese started invading uh, Korea and China specifically, um, 
there were, it was like no contest. You know, the Japanese Navy was super powerful. I don't think China had a Navy at all at the time. So they kind of just walked into China. And like a lot of the things the Nazis and the fascists started doing in the early 30s in terms of taking over politics and invading places. So, for example, the invasion of Manchuria, which we know about um, and we think about the, you know, the rape of Nanking and, and those stories, that was 1931. So a full 10 years before the events of this film. So the Japanese have been, you know, invading China take, and taking over Russian colonies even earlier in the century when they, when they fought the Russians. And, um, in 1937, Japan officially declared war on China. So, as far as Japan and China are concerned, World War II started in 37 for them, when while well, it started in 39 for the rest of the world. And, you know, there were localized there was localized fighting before Japan, of course, attacked Pearl Harbor, which is a, a, a moment in time that we see in this film, even though the attack isn't depicted. So Shanghai at this point had already been taken over and was being controlled by the Japanese. But there was this small section of old Shanghai called the International Section, and this is where the British still held control. So as a result of um, the Treaty of Nanking after the first Anglo-Chinese War, which was over opium um, earlier, I forget the year of that exactly, but after the first Anglo-Chinese war that was over kind of treatment of opium traders that, you know, again, a lot of British colonists were in China. Um, that war ended with the Treaty of Nanking. And in that treaty, the British got control over Hong Kong and five ports in China. And one of them was the Shanghai International Settlement. So all the way up to the Japanese invading Shanghai, they controlled the rest of the city. But this sort of fenced off settlement was under um, UK rule and Europeans lived there. Lots of Chinese nationals lived there, too, because they knew it was kind of the last safe stronghold um, away from any issues with Japanese soldiers and, and that type of control. And that lasted all the way until the attacks on Pearl Harbor. So December 7th, 1941 happens. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Um, of course, it's a surprise attack to everyone except for the Japanese. And... The Japanese know what's coming and they're preparing to move in to this international section of Shanghai, but nobody else knows. And so we see that in the scene where um, the young Jamie chases his plane over that berm. Yes. Oh, my God. And there's all those soldiers hanging out. And because I hadn't quite done the historical research yet, I was like, those Chinese uniforms, are they Japanese uniforms? I'm not 100% sure. There's no flag, so I had a hard time telling. Of course, I realized later these are Japanese soldiers because they are right there and ready and garrisoned, equipped to go in and take the city. So after Pearl Harbor, uh, the Japanese indeed uh, took over and occupied this international section, as well as attacked the only two Allied ships um, that were in this area. So... The USS Wake and the HMS Petrel, or Petrel, I guess they'd say, but it's a bird, not not like the word Petrel, um, were in the Yangtze River, docked there, but 
the Allies had already pulled most of their sailors off those ships. So they just had skeleton crews. They were like six, eight people manning each of those ships. Um, the Japanese essentially boarded both ships, you know, telling them to surrender. And I think they took the USS Wake so fast. Um, I couldn't tell from what I was reading whether – I, I think officially it's considered the only ship in World War II, the only American ship in World War II to surrender to the enemy. But again, I think they got boarded by Japanese soldiers and it was kind of like, okay, we can all shoot you or the ship is ours. So the USS Wake had to surrender and was boarded too quickly. The British were in the process of kind of destroying some of their code books and documents because they knew what was going on. And the British had gotten word about Pearl Harbor right after it happened through their intelligence. I think before the Americans on the USS Wake had. So they were completely caught by surprise. The British were stalling for time and getting ready to scuttle the ship essentially so that the um, Japanese couldn't take it. Japanese boarded the ship, uh, I think demanded to take it. Uh, the, the the captain was trying to stall for time. And when that didn't work, he just said, get the hell off my bloody ship. So he kicks the Japanese off the ship. And pretty much immediately, as soon as the Japanese were gone, their destroyer, I think that they had in the river, as well as other gun emplacements started shelling um, the Pedrel. I don't think they even ever made it off the dock. The ship essentially was sunk where it stood. Uh, a couple of sailors died right away. A couple were taken prisoner. And there, there's one famous uh, sailor who ended up becoming part of a spy ring against the Japanese in China and uh, wrote a book about it. It's called like The Loneliest Campaign or something like that. I'll have to look that up. But anyways, sounded interesting. So that's kind of what was happening outside of the settlement. And then we see the scenes of the Japanese tanks coming in and crushing cars and sort of taking over the city. A little bit of resistance, but I think that resistance is accurate. It's kind of like, I don't even know why they were doing it. It was just civilians taking pot shots at this army coming in with tanks. I'm like, all you're going to do is piss them off and die. Like you're not actually putting up any kind of resistance. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the basic historical setup to what happened. Um, interestingly, Ballard wrote two different books about this, and one was a memoir while the other was a novel, and this is based on the novel. So Empire of the Sun, the novel that he wrote that was really popular, I think it also included kind of inventing some characters here and there, and not everything was super factual, whereas his memoir was probably more accurate to his real story. Most famously, they didn't go into him and his family did not go into a camp until 43 and they were never separated. He was in a camp with his parents the whole time and his sister. So anyways, we'll get into the differences between real life and the film. And then, you know, through the end of the film all the way to 1945, you see I think the first atomic bombing in Hiroshima from a distance. And the guards escaping and the camp being liberated. And um, yeah, it takes it to the end of the war in the Pacific. So that's our setup. So what did you guys think of the uh, the crawl at the beginning? Eh, it was okay. So I, I find it interesting that there was uh, the crawl plus the narration. That's true. And I feel like, I don't know if it was just that I really like the guy's narration of it but I don't know if it would have worked without the crawl. I thought they worked really well in tandem together myself, but like, I don't know if that's just me liking it. Cause I've watched that my whole life. It's funny. That was actually brought up in one of the critic reviews. <laughs> Somebody like, oh, really? Yeah. They, they compared it to how like 
This movie doesn't know whether it's for adults or for children because it has that screen crawl and then it narrates it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a bit much, guy, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a little uh, being a little finicky there. I think that's, that's a, a harsh criticism. Maybe because they want to make sure everybody gets all the information. Yeah, well, and it's funny, like it it doesn't it it doesn't have any music playing under it. Um, so you just get that really neat, uh, that really neat is sunrise rising through the word sun, uh, and uh, just the narration. I don't know. There uh, maybe it's the fact that it's not underscored with any music that uh, it. I don't know. I feel like it kind of hits harder and leaves you with a little bit more of an ominous thing. It's it's really tough in a movie where John fucking Williams is doing the the score for it to not throw John Williams music under every piece of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought that had a certain amount of restraint that uh, I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think every time Blade Runner has come up in this podcast, it's been Liam bringing it up and not me. So I feel comfortable bringing it up in this instance, <laughs> since I think seven episodes in, it's my first time possibly. <laughs> But I'm um, very conscientious about it. I'm the wrong person I, I to I keep ask. trying to set you up and you <laughs> just keep on taking a pass. And I'm like, all right, fine. No, well, because, you know, I, I already get made fun of for being the Blade Runner guy. So I really try and tone it down as much as I can. However, uh, it was my girlfriend's choice to want to watch the original theatrical version of Blade Runner last night. Um, and I had not seen that in about 15 years. And it famously has this voiceover that most people don't like and it's kind of awkward but regardless how you feel it definitely makes for a different film but anyways getting back to this i was gonna say i'm the wrong person to ask about opening crawls and voiceovers because i'm so used to like what i like in blade runner which is the final cut which with a nice clean opening crawl which hasn't had a voiceover it in any version and then a film that does not have a voiceover in it so i guess i'm sort of partial to disliking voiceovers most of the time because it's kind of the way my brain works so i think it could have done without it and just had uh the writing but then again i think about people who absorb things better orally as opposed to um reading it and so it's there for both types of people so that's great too so have you seen uh have you seen adaptation no i really want to though (laughs) fucking crazy ass movie but like there's this interesting thing because he's narrating it like he there's voiceover throughout the movie because mm-hmm. he's trying to figure out how to how to write a screenplay for this book that's impossible to adapt into a screenplay mm-hmm. and uh so he, he in a moment of desperation he goes and attends this screenwriting seminar <laughs> oh, with no. with Brian Cox is the is the guy giving the seminar and he's like running this this voiceover narration like it just up in his head the whole time uh, until at one point where Brian Cox at the podium just goes, and God help you if you use voiceover, my friend. God help you. <laughs> and from that moment through the rest of the movie, there's no voiceover. Oh, that's it so is, interesting. Yeah, it's such a strange movie. That you, I don't, because there's no other voiceover, right? Mm-mm. Like it's just in that little beginning bit, and it's always it always kind of weirds me out. I'm like, well. I thought this would continue, but if you're just having it in the beginning, it feels a bit like short. It feels a bit out of place when you watch it. And and I'm not. I'm and I'm not, fine with it, to be clear. But. Right. And I'm fine with it, too. And I'm not trying to nitpick this particular point. But in general, because, again, I was going to talk about Spielberg. 
while I think the assessment of like whether this movie's made for adults or for kids is a little unfair, because I'm like, mm, A, it doesn't matter. I feel like both audiences are going to get something different from this. And I think you see the perspective of both adults and children given pretty objectively here. So like you could relate to whoever you want to when the little kids are fighting over marbles um, or of course, Christian Bale is, is we're getting his perspective. Like you can identify with it as a child or as an adult and you're getting plenty of interaction with, with adults um, in the film as well. But I will say that it does feel like it came at a point as Liam put it, where uh, it might be the last time where Spielberg was um, unsure of himself. But I think Spielberg's still finding himself and finding his style in this film a little bit. Um, And I saw that in the sort of like how much Spielberginess is in the scenes, because some scenes it's rather thick and a bit much and it's like the dialogue is just a bit too much and i'm like okay i I could have gotten all this without hearing these things said and other times like i think the very opening scene where we see the coffins floating in the river and then the japanese warship running into them i was like wow this is a stark and intense and artistic opening to a film i really loved that opening shot um and then again set pieces that are just extremely well done i really didn't see any holes in them or any amateurness of any sort i love the the way that the um opening shot sets up the closing shot yeah of his of his suitcase has made its way down the river and is floating there like the coffins floated there Mm mm-hmm um, you know, of course, symbolizing that his childhood has has become a thing that is dead, like he's not the same person that he was. Um, that's that kind of like long play light touch that Spielberg is capable of and yet decides not to do most of the time. Right. And this movie is filled with that stuff. Like I made a lot of notes while I was watching it. And one of them was about in the very early part of it where they're going to that party and before we go out into the streets we see it has this lovely delicate music and these gorgeously costumed english folks and all of this and then it's starkly contrasted with the chinese folks who are essentially rioting to try to escape danger and that's another one of those moments where spielberg lets he he shows instead of instead of tells and I really think he was trying to do that a lot with this movie. He really wanted to kind of separate himself from being an action slash kids movie director and kind of make a a thoughtful an art important piece. film. Yes, exactly. An important film, which I don't think anybody would despite how you feel about this movie. I think he he succeeds with that with Schindler's List. <laughs> Not so much this one, but and that probably speaks to his, you know, his Judaism and his much, much greater knowledge of World War II and all the research he did and all that shit. But like he really just knocks it out of the park with how um, how artistic this film is, because I don't necessarily associate artistry with Spielberg. Spielberg is a lot of things and most of them are great, but artistic and like 
having certain shots be very gauzy and so much of the camera work in this, which, of course, is due to the cinematographer. Alan Davio. Alan Davio. Davio. Davio, I'm going to go with. Due to cinematographer Alan Davio, but the director has a lot of say in how these shots are put together and how he wants to set things up. And I think in this, Spielberg really makes an effort to go the extra mile and really explore that artist side rather than his much more usual he's a workmanlike director where he gets some great shots and he tells a really great story but it's not necessarily something you're going to see at like the Venice Film Festival it's uh it's funny cuz Dan you said that uh there were times that it felt extra spielbergy with certain sections of dialogue and I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, what some of those examples were for you, because where I feel the most Spielbergy, uh, are the places where there is no dialogue. Um, for instance, when he's singing the song again to the, uh, are we to understand that those are going to be kamikaze pilots at this point in the war or are I they think just, so. yes. yeah, they are kamikaze pilots. Yeah. That's the ceremony they were doing. I yes. think the ceremony and the, the headband. The yeah. headband is the big giveaway and mm-hmm. that they have the flag with the um the writing on it and all that. Those are all that's kamikaze pilot. And he's and he's singing to them and like the the gruff Japanese sergeant is like standing there listening, getting a tear in his eye, and like the sun is setting and just it, like Spielbergy as Spielbergy gets. And uh the scene where uh he's like touching the plane, I think mm. I think Christian Bale's, like the camera work there and how it picks up Christian Bale's performance in that scene is sort of that scene's saving grace because like just the the tension that you see in his fingers and his hands as he's rubbing them along the like, that doesn't look like a 12-year-old actor. No, Bale is. Playing a part. Like that is some like next level shit as far as like screen acting goes and he's nailing it. Uh, but the, the way he's running his fingers along it, uh, and then, you know, of course, like you have the, the mean Japanese guy who's like yelling at him to get away from the plane. And then you have the three pilots who are like, yeah, kid, fucking yeah. Like, and they're like, he's like saluting them and they're saluting them back and everybody's having a grand old time. But where the fuck are all those sparks coming from? Like, that's a lot. (laughs) Are they cutting the plane in half? Like it's it. So I don't know if anybody listens to like a lot of Patton Oswalt stand up, but when he was describing like, you know, like essentially like how gay eighties metal videos are. And he's like, they're all in like, <laughs> they're just like guys in leather vests with nothing else rubbing it shoulder to shoulder against each other in warehouses, factories that produce nothing but sparks. It's like, that's what that was. It was just sparks shooting out of every orifice of this plane that is supposed to be taken off in like a minute. Random aside, how anyone thought that Rob Halford was straight and that Judas Priest wasn't all about that, you know, uh, daddy dom lifestyle. I will never understand. I will never understand. Rob Halford literally does the like handkerchief thing to let the two cars go in their music video. And I watched it. I was like, I don't know how you could ever think this guy. He wants to be Natalie Wood. He does. He does. And Rob Halford <laughs> deserves to be Natalie Wood. Dang it. Well, um, I mean, he, is he still alive? No, I think he's... Was it a boating accident? It wasn't a boating accident. Okay. No. Sorry, is that too soon? 
Where was Robert Wagner the date? (laughs) Well, we're not talking about Christopher Walken, so I think we're okay. Um, No, yes, he is still alive. Rob Halford is still kicking. So my apologies, Rob, for not for doubting you. (laughs) Um, So the the thing that I felt was really Spielberg-y, if you will, was um, Basie, John Malkovich's character. And that was another thing that was very much echoed in the criticism circles, um, was that his character feels very Indiana Jones, which that I don't agree with. But what I don't agree with his that his character feels like he's Indiana Jones. I feel like he is almost the inverse of Jones in that Jones is Indiana Jones has a very um, what's the word? Well, Basie never had sex with an underage girl that we know of, so there's there's oh, that. Oh, that guy totally did. Don't even lie. We don't know. It's never come up. Um, he is very gosh. comfortable, like picking up a twelve year old and putting them in bed, but <laughs> it's never actually come up in in the movie. They never bring up. I that. forgot that John Malkovich was in this movie, and in the scene, which it takes a while, uh, the scene where he's introduced is just showing his hands cooking the rice, so it takes a Such minute. Such a great entrance. Oh, great so entrance, good. and just, I fucking love John Malkovich. He is just such a hell of an actor, and he just chews it up quietly in everything that he's in. Pay him. Pay that man his money. <laughs> Sorry, I love him in Rounders. He is so fucking ridiculous in Rounders as Teddy oh, KGB. I, I love the way he refuses to be typecast and does all kinds of different stuff. And he's done a lot yes. of theater. He's like a really serious actor. And just every scene you see him in, you're never like, I, I just never think that he's acting. He's just so natural and so fluid. And whether right. he's playing a scoundrel or a weirdo or whatever, he's just. This was my first Malkovich, by the way. What? I could see that. Well, I mean, it was. It's, it's I really was early. like 10. Oh, I'm sorry. It was like yeah. Maybe 1992. Not like this. Not like. I was thinking that I've like never, you haven't seen any Malkovich other than no, this right now. I've seen I was other, like, oh, shit. Of course, I've, I mean, I've seen other Malkovich, but like this was my exposure to John Malkovich as a, as an actor when I was little, um, and I loved Basie so much. I, now I, or then, or as a both. kid, as a well, I still love the character now. I think he's fascinating, um, and so I'll tell you when. It, it never occurred to me the Indiana Jones thing until I was rewatching it this time when he goes into the American dormitory and mm. Basie's behind the curtain and uh and uh, uh Cypher from the Matrix is there and he's like won't let him in and he's like, Hey boss, it's the kid. <sighs> and I, I know uh, we're not doing my boy Joe Pantoliano like that. Yeah, the Joey only Pants. Italian in the film. Come Joey on now. Pants. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Joey Pants, he's in it. And uh he's how can he be the one if he's dead? <laughs> um, but uh, when he says, come on in, kid, that sounds like Harrison Ford. Mm, like, yes. it sounds like Harrison Ford overdubbed that. Hmm. It you does. Know? And, and Indiana Jones would be this guy probably if he were in a Japanese internment camp and had no ambition. But Indiana Jones would never have left the kid behind. That's the difference, and that's I don't why know. I say if like, he was a blonde woman, he would have dumped her for the next thing over. Uh, that, but that's not a kid. He doesn't leave short round to be short in the round mines. is not around in Last Crusade. Is all I'm saying. I can only assume 
That's because Indiana Jones is paying for his college. This is Temple of Doom with British short, like told from the perspective of British short round. <laughs> I'm going to have to get God. a derailing sound bit in here so I can just play a train like careening <laughs> off the tracks. Like, we're like five movies removed from this movie. Pull it together. The thing is, is with John Malkovich, I think he is a perfect person to play that um, flip side of an Indiana Jones type character because at his at his heart, like Indiana Jones is a philanthropist who's trying to save these things. If you want to go with the original meaning, I'm not getting into the imperialism there. But John Malkovich absolutely owns this sense of competence and uh he's so casual. And everything he does, even after the sergeant just beats the ever-loving fuck out of him. And he's in the hospital and, you know, Jim is talking to him and he's got, you know, he can barely talk because I can only assume that supposedly his jaw is broken or something. But Malkovich just plays it so well. And his character is both likable and hateable. Mm-hmm. At the same time, with all of his actions, like you can easily like him and hate him. In particular, with the scene, um, which I imagine is probably one of the most well-known scenes of this, is uh, Jim, Christian Bale's character, crawling just past the barbed wire mm-hmm. to see if there are actually uh, mines. And John Malkovich is just watching him, just totally chill, like, well, if a kid dies, whatever. Jim's the but- black cat. It's he yes. knows he's not going to die. He has absolute faith that he has trained this boy like and he's picked himself a winner. And I think he sees himself because that especially at the very end when the two of them are reunited very briefly mm-hmm. in the most horrible way. Um, he very much sees himself in this boy. And then the point where you're talking about Liam with the the character arc is when Jim steps away mm-hmm. and like judges Basie because and I can't remember the line didn't I teach you anything yes yeah you taught me that people will do anything for a potato and that's such an indictment immediate indictment of him and for most kids they wouldn't really understand that, but you can tell that Jim does. And that is such a change from the Jim that we see at the beginning, who's very naive and wishy-washy and totally out of touch with reality. And in and that moment is such a big growth point. A couple of interesting points that I like are when they're in that first uh, like sort of clearing station for the prisoners. And he starts to lose it on Basie because he doesn't want to take the dead woman's shoes. And then Mm. later on, when he's talking to the doctor, and he's like, by the way, dibs on those sweet golf shoes. Yeah, give me that. Uh, And then he gets them. And he gets them. And I'm like, what? that can't be comfortable to be walking around in golf cleats through the desert. But, I mean, they're the nicest pair of shoes around. Better than no shoes. Well, and that's the thing is that he learns pretty quickly – that and this is always this has always been one of my favorite throwaway lines and it's and it to me is the line that has always saved John Malkovich's character in my in my perspective is uh but it's it's also a revealing line for Jim 
is when they're taking him around and he says, why won't, why can't you sell me? Like he's dis like he's, it's, it's, it's almost disappointment, but it's not quite, he's just like, well, that's strange. Like I thought we were going to sell me. Why, why are you not having any luck with this? You know? And it's like just this weird, like you think that it's something that's being done to him and yet it is, but at the same time, he needs somebody, he needs to belong to somebody. He needs somebody who can give him the food because he has absolutely no means of doing that himself. He tried to surrender to the Japanese and they weren't taking him. Uh, so he's essentially surrendered to John Malkovich. And as long as John Malkovich doesn't just leave him, as long as right. he places him in the care of somebody else who's responsible for feeding him, he's fine. And he can survive in that, that dynamic. But it's when... It's when he thinks they're just going to leave that he starts to panic. Yeah, he's not a fan of being abandoned by adults. But, man, what a uh, morally ambiguous adult to be attached to in John Malkovich's character, uh, Basie. Uh, also, I, I got to always ask these questions because, like I said, my gaydar has been broken for many, many years. Are Basie and Frank a, a like, underground couple? I Like, when we first walk into their first apartment on the ship, I was kind of like, are these dudes... Together, I can't tell. Frank seems like very attached to him. He's crying later when he's left. I, I just I couldn't put it together. What's you I guys think feelings? Frank is basically uh it, it's the same dynamic that he has with uh Jim, but he's a grown up. Like he's a just yeah. a, a weak dependent on Basie. Yeah, he is a he is a hanger on. Um and he's so a toady. As we're talking about Basie, so the thing that I kept seeing in their relationship was Oliver Twist. I swear mm -hmm. to God. I just kept seeing that over and over with um, Basie Fagan. as Fagan, exactly, and Jim as Oliver. And I'm sure that's at least somewhat intentional because there's a couple of plot points that are just really on point with it. But And Basie's character just feels so much like that. But did you guys get that or was that just me? No, I definitely see that as like, um, so yes and no. I think that, uh, Fagan to a certain extent had, uh, a needed the kids more than Basie needed Jim. You know, right. like they were his means of supporting himself was this little ragtag group of crooks. Um, right. But, but Basie uh, sees opportunity there, but he's always, he, he's always ready to have lost everything and start again from scratch with nothing but himself. Like that's one of the, there's something that like, there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a trope, if it's an idea of ourselves that, uh, that or a way Americans like to project the, the image of an American. Um, but Basie really encapsulates a few of those things at once. Um, the resilience, the resourcefulness, but also, uh, he is a guy who has taken some serious ass whoopings. Yes, he has. And and knows that he will take more. 
and that they don't really matter because he's going to come through them. Like I loved I, the way they, I was going to mention this earlier uh, when um, Katie was mentioning his earlier beating, but that when he sees it coming, when they're in front of Jim's house and he throws him the sunglasses and says, I want these back when it's over or whatever. I want, it's like, the, I oh, want wow, these back when they're done. He's been through this before. Yeah. yeah it's like, ex- that's a dude who's like definitely gotten his ass handed to him several times, which is no surprise because right. he's definitely a shit talking, you know, he's quick with well, his and mouth. He's, he's a sailor and during that time and maybe now, I don't know, sailors let us know. It, it seems like it's a, you're going to get your ass beat at least a few times. Just <laughs> dealing with that because like he I mean, I'm not necessarily speaking about Navy folks you heard it here first I mean, folks Katie thinks sailors about- <laughs> get their asses kicked for a living I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> oh you're just no. buttering up the no, marine no. over there aren't you I'm just no kidding. no what I mean is like when we learn about sailor's life is because he's a merchant sailor he's not part of the military and that kind of life especially then it's rough know, and tumble very much so and it's it's kind of the an employment that lends itself to someone who's more um unconventional yeah exactly and allows them a lot of freedom of movement they can you know kind of come up with their own job on the fly like he talks about you know oh i've got these pirate friends so i've got this person and and at the end of the movie we see him with these people who we have no idea who they are and they're never explained but that's what it feels like is that he is um what's the word itinerant yeah 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 he he, he just he also wanders around does his own thing he he feels like somebody that you might run into in uh in on the road yes definitely you know what i mean like that sort of lost post-world war ii generation that was just like getting drunk and driving back and forth across the country because they had nothing else going for them, you know, and like writing beat poetry, uh, (laughs) you know, he, he felt more of the beat generation than the greatest generation. Yes. He's very disillusioned. Did you guys catch the line, the parenting covid line just very appropriate for you guys no so so like i thought of you guys instantly and anybody else i know who's a parent right now so uh jamie's hanging out and he's talking to his like adoptive parents in the camp essentially which the victors right yes which by the way was pretty standard basically any family who had zero to one children would be forced to pick up at least everybody had to have two so you would pick up an orphan if you didn't have a second one like assigned to you in the camp to take care of so that was pretty normal anyways jamie asked them why did the japanese close the schools and uh mrs victor said to punish the parents <laughs> yeah. i was dying because I, I, I was like to oh, punish the adults Every yeah. COVID parent here is going to relate to that freaking quote. Oh, so yeah, man. <laughs> you know, we talked a lot in uh, in in Grave of the Fireflies about like the accurate depiction of how children behave. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, th- this has it so nailed. The questions. Yeah, th- this has its like his. Now, is he supposed to be thirteen? He's 12 when it's. I was going to say, he he strikes me as maybe more of like a 10 or 11 
uh, myself, but like it's, it is such a good depiction of what a child is like in any circumstance. Um, you know, because we, we talked about how like kids have, you know, their way of just sort of like adapting to their circumstances and surviving and finding fun. It's like, Oh, I got shit to do. You know, uh, I gotta, I gotta play with these marbles. These marbles are the important thing. Um, but yeah, like, and it's just everything that Christian Bale does in this, like I can absolutely like his responses, how he talks back to people, like the way he talks back, but also the way he can, uh, manipulate the adults around him to get what he wants to a certain extent, um, is, is very authentic. So I have to give, although, um, I don't think that, uh, Tom Stoppard is one who is, uh, in favor. Like, I feel like he's, he's gone a little bit into the JK Rowling camp, uh, as far as, like, you know, some of the things that he said and things like that, uh, I've, I've theater friends who have, who have long decried him as an asshole and uh. have, have recently been feeling more vindicated in their, in their longtime dislike of him. Uh, I, I will still, and I, I do always have, and always will love Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead. Um, but, uh, I have to give I him knew credit. we were going to get some playwright talk. Yeah, here. exactly. Well, it. you know, it's like the, it, that's what you're here for, Liam. It is. It is. That's why you guys pay me the big bucks. But uh, <laughs> which, by the way, you should see RNG at some point, or read it, or watch it. Something. Uh, it's it's the story of Hamlet told as an absurdist play through the eyes of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two most nothing characters in the entire piece, uh, <laughs> and it's fan fucking tastic. That sounds hilarious. It is it does. great. Um, and, and like, actually the, the, the stage directions for some of these scenes are actually just lifted dialogue from Hamlet where it describes something that happened off stage or like the other day, it just takes that up and puts it in the stage directions. Like, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a neat piece. Yeah. It's cool, um, yeah. what year, what year is that from? That was, I can't remember Ish. when it was made, it, when it was first written. I want to say in the 80s. Okay. I know in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, he actually made it into a movie with uh, fucking Tim Roth and Gary Oldman huh. uh, as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Richard Dreyfus holding, entirely holding his own as uh, the player. Because the, the troop of players that come in and do the mousetrap scene in Hamlet, they actually are a pretty big and pivotal uh, role in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and Richard Dreyfus plays the head player, uh, and he is fantastic. So, so you like the movie version? Is it good? I do. I do. Okay. The movie version is very good. Uh, there's a lot that's cut out of the play dialogue-wise because it's a very wordy play, but it's a it's a nice adaptation, and he wrote and directed the adaptation as well. Nice. Um, so, yeah, recommend it. Uh, the... But yeah, so I know I got off topic there, as is my way, but I think that the writing of this child, uh, maybe it was uh, Tom Stoppard being good at his job. Maybe it was the fact that it was based on a semi-autobiographical novel from the guy who was this kid growing up to a certain extent, um, you know, James, James Graham is J.G. Ballard. Um 
so yeah, but it's it's something that you don't always see, even in Spielberg movies, who is famous for making movies with little kids and that you know are portrayed realistically and and you know the way kids are and talk. It really doesn't. Sometimes it does ring a little hollow. In this movie, it nails it more often than it doesn't. Yeah, as someone with a child of that age, it's a boy, like it it did feel that. I mean, my son is a very the nice way to put it, he's a very mature 13-year-old and that he's the sassiest kid ever. <laughs> but um my son woke me up this morning with, you know, oftentimes he's, you know, he's a he's a good kid and he uh sometimes just for sheer altruism sometimes because he wants something uh he'll often make coffee in the morning and bring me up a cup of coffee in the morning so this morning i was awakened to a cup of coffee in bed which was great and he said i know what i want for my birthday and i said (laughs) which is not anywhere it's in november like it is not soon (laughs) he said i know what i want for my birthday i said what's that bud and he said a giant rock Okay. And I said, Easy to come by. Why? <laughs> Don't ask why. And he said, I want to carve a bust of myself. <laughs> and then left the room. What? <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Well, at least he but- doesn't know enough to ask for granite, but you know. <laughs> no, he, he wanted a rock. And we we're. <laughs> So then I was like, what kind of rock do you want? He was like, well, I'd like it to be terracotta, but I'll settle for marble. Oh, he'll wow. settle for marble. I was like, That's so nice of him. That's Bring amazing. me more coffee. I'm going to need more coffee get, for this conversation. Yeah, you, I'm going to need a lot exactly. more coffee today. I want a bust of myself. <laughs> I definitely have a few more things I want to get into about Spielberg. Just a few scenes that kind of... I, I'm glad you brought up the initial escape scene through the crowd, uh, Liam, because I was like writing notes and paying attention, but some of them I had to rewind for a sec because I was like, did I just see three Nazi armbands walk by? And sure enough, I rewounded and there were three Nazis walking down the street and, and like all these thoughts went through my head. I'm like, what's the history there? What are these Germans doing in Shanghai? This is definitely after the UK and Germany are at war. So are they cool with the Brit? It was just like, but it happens so fast that you just don't have that much time. The Marie Antoinette person who again is like totally Mm -hmm. in costume and then looking out the, the um, window, totally worried. I was like, wow. You know, and again, some of that stuff, if it were, a more prominent character would feel heavy handed, but because it's just a flash on the screen, I think it works. There's other moments like the gone with the wind mural where, you know, I'm watching the movie live and have to move on. So I didn't have that much time to think about it, but I was kind of like, okay, rich aristocrats kind of crying in their thematically on the nose. Are we making a comparison to Southern aristocrats watching the South burn down from a war that they started? You know, maybe just a bit. Yeah, I think that was – but the other funny thing is – and this was one that I I saw on the IMDb goofs. I don't know if anybody else perused that section on this movie, but um, it's period appropriate for that movie to be showing in, in uh, Shanghai at that point. But the poster that they used was actually from the theatrical re-release in the 60s. Yes, I'm <laughs> Which, which is, is obvious 
for one glaring reason if you blow that image up to be on the size of a to be the side of a building is that uh scarlett o'hara's nipple nipples are very prominent through that dress in that painting which would not have been the case in a 1939 poster. And Selznick would never, ever have approved that. Well. <laughs> Selznick directed Gone with the Wind, for those who no, don't know. No, he produced it. It had. Oh, he. Yeah, he produced it. It had like three different directors. Yeah, um, but he was the guy. He Yeah, he, he, was, he was the guy who got it on the screen. But like, uh, it went through. I think yeah, at least at least three different directors, uh, from Victor Fleming to uh, whose name I can't remember right now. Oh yes, those other two yes. guys whose names you just said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, you can do, you can do, and people have done entire podcasts just dedicated to the making of Gone with the Wind. Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, I mean, people do that. I'm with, not wading into that minefield. Pe- thank you. People do that with Blade Runner, so you know you can do you can do a podcast about anything. Nerds. Yeah, there's a few. I did read through the goofs quickly. Uh, there's a few anachronisms. Again, I, I'm pretty lenient with anachronisms in film, especially when it's a matter of things being a few years off or it's like, well, that mm-hmm. poster just artistically looks better. Let's just throw it on there. Because in the end, it's like, who cares? It's a movie adaptation of a novel that was an adaptation of a true story with some made up characters. So it's kind of like, you know or what I mean? when like, people I, I, are like, that model plane that he was playing with didn't come out until 1950. And I'm like, fuck you. That shit's like- just <laughs> annoying. It's like, oh, well, how could you tell? It was on fire. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, that model of sunglasses had was out in forty five. Like it had been designed, but it wasn't available to the public until nineteen forty seven. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here and get a life. Like those are the just most annoying. the most distracting thing for me in this movie on this watch because I never noticed it before. Was I'm, I'm watching it and we're going through. Uh, the American, it's, it's when we're going through the American dormitory and, you know, they're all like, you know, rough Americans, all a little bit rapey and like playing baseball and things like that. But, uh, I was like, wait a minute. Is that Ben fucking Stiller? Oh, I did see that. Yeah. And yes, it was Ben fucking (laughs) Stiller. Definitely Ben Stiller. Totally Ben Stiller. And you know what? He was kind of hot. You know, the trivia that I saw for this, when he was making this, this is where he got the idea for Tropic Thunder. No way. No shit. He had totally a, real. Uh, you know what his name was? His character's name? It was uh, Dainty. Dainty. Or <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in, you know, he's got like, he's got like five or six lines. He's got. He's yeah, got he a, becomes like, yeah. he he's like the number two for Basie's affection. Mm-hmm. He's Jerry Stiller's son. Jerry Stiller's son does not get one line. He gets several. <laughs> right. At this point, that was who Ben Stiller was known as anyway. Sure, sure. Son. But I mean, like, he were, I, I've always thought Ben Stiller was kind of like funny looking. But in this, I was like, damn, like he, he looks pretty good. I don't know. I feel like people always use uh, meet the parents or I've heard this example used before in um, when people are talking about casting and auditioning for stuff. It's like. 
it doesn't matter what role you're going for, really. You always want to be in like the best shape of your life. Because if you look good on camera, you're more likely to get a part. Now, of course, there's parts they make for like the fat dude or the old dude or whatever, um, where you're going to maybe physically alter yourself or they're looking for a specific body type. But when you watch Ben Stiller in like the the uh, volleyball scene in Meet the Parents, like he has like an eight pack and it's like, it's almost just weird. Because his character doesn't do anything physical for a living, and he's just, like, supposed to be this, like, fiancé character. But every time he takes his shirt off, you're like, God damn, Ben Stiller is ripped. Like, he's ready yeah. to be in Tropic Thunder in that, in, <laughs> or, in Meet the Parents. Or Dodgeball. Because in Dodgeball, he is stacked. Right. Just it's, utterly, and, and horrifying looking because of, like, the facial hair. Well, it's and the mustache. Like, I don't even know why you yeah, need it, why you need an 8-pack with that mustache. <laughs> <laughs> that mustache does all the heavy lifting. I had one last anachronism. Uh, one that, again, I'm not mad at them for doing, but it was interesting to find out because now it makes me want to do more research on it, is it said uh, when you walk into the doctors giving that uh, woman CPR and chest compressions and CPR hadn't been de- uh, was developed in the 1960s. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, wow. CPR is super modern. Yeah, that's like a major plot point. Yeah, but I was like, the movie. what did they do before CPR? Like, that made me think, what the hell would they be doing to I this I think woman? they just like, let you die. <laughs> no I, I think it was like they would hammer on your chest, <laughs> like, with their fist. That is yeah, kind like of the hand down and, like, just... Yep, yep. But I don't think it was like you have chest compressions and then we breathe into your mouth. Obviously, that's CPR. It's like that but... scene in Pulp Fiction, but with fewer needles. Here, I'll tell you what to do. No, 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 man. I ain't give, you, you, you're going to give it a shot. No, you're going to give it a shot. I ain't giving her a shot. I ain't giving her the shot. I've never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. So the ending of this film, like a lot of things in this movie, takes a long time to happen because, like, his time, Jim's time at the end of the war stretches out over a good 45 minutes from that last scene where um, the bombers come in at, what are they, the Mustang 51s? The P-51 Mustangs. Cadillac of the Sky. Um, When those come in until the point where the movie actually is over, it's a good 45 minutes. And we we see a lot of change happen in that. And I think for me, that's when I really started to empathize with Jim when he is going on that walk and dealing with so much horror and starving. He is obviously portrayed as starving. And um, his relationship with Miranda Richardson's character, which I think for me was definitely the most muddy of all of this because it's kind of weird and gross, but kind of mom-like but kind of not and they never really nail the tone for that especially with how she dies so i really liked it because i honestly jim is 13 14 at that point and at 13 14 your sexuality is all over the place and you're not really sure what's what we're, we're talking about mrs victor here for anyone who yes. didn't realize yes who- miranda richardson mrs victor and he Spielberg really captures the awkwardness, but it also doesn't feel like we get enough time with Mrs. Victor to really establish the relationship that her and Jim have by that final scene where he's he essentially chooses to stay with her while she dies. Well, I also think a lot of her speaking of of some of the editing that Dan, I know you want to talk about, I think a lot of her stuff got left on the cutting room floor. 
Mm, that makes sense. Um, and I think that there were a few actors that that found themselves drastically truncated. Um, there, because yeah. there's a lot of really interesting periphery characters, like the Doctor, like Mrs. Victor. My favorite is Max, who's like the old Brit, who's like Jamie, mm, yep. don't run, like oh, that guy. Right. I fucking love that dude. Like, I need that dude in my life. Like, I just the one need... who tries to save him at the end, right? Who's, yes. Come on, you're gonna die. Yeah, who... die if you stay. Exactly. There. He's you know you'll okay. be blackballed from the country clubs there, Jim. Like you know that that guy. Um, no, your boy tells me he's an atheist. <laughs> Always thought he was. <laughs> you know, like nothing phases him. I feel like that guy was probably a like a, a colonel or something in World War One. Like he was one of those like pip pip cheerio do it for the side boys kind of it just like nothing phased him he was I don't know if he he's was, the one that sings Tipperary in the background in that one scene but it might as well be him I loved hearing <laughs> an old Brit singing Tipperary in the in yeah. the uh, in the camp and uh, but just like he was just always so cool nothing like completely unflappable but always like sort of had one eye out on Jim you know like. I would have, I would love to see more of that character, but yeah, Mrs. Victor um, is really interesting. Horrible bitch in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You've forgotten the cutlery. No, I haven't. Like, just I, I love that little exchange. Uh, you know, her husband is just kind of like, Meh. you know, his wife's dying of tuberculosis, and he's horny, so he wants some. Yes, and I did want to bring this up of uh, tropes, film tropes, whenever I see them. And one of my most, like, eye-rolly ones was that they did it in this one. There's a scene where they are panning over when uh, Jim and the Victors are sharing a, a room. And it's a full body shot of her. And you see her go. And I was like, oh, she's going to die. She's going to die. <laughs> that is, that is the it- cough of Damocles right there. That. <laughs> I think I'm getting the black lung, Bob. It, yep, I, I read my notes. I called it, she makes the cough of doom mm-hmm. because that it's that. And um, my other hate, most hated one is uh, when a woman throws up in a movie, a woman of a certain she's age pregnant. throws up in a movie. Exactly. She's preggo. Gotta be pregnant. And that, uh, I'm always just like, Ugh, guys, you couldn't think of a better way to communicate this. But Miranda Richardson does it admirably, but it's telegraphed from that moment that Mrs. Victor is not long for this. Well, I know, world. but it's just like she's, you know, she's she's going to die of TB or whatever it is the, the phantom coughing disease is. But like, that doesn't stop her from fulfilling her wifely duties for like baldy mclimy pants over there like whatever his oh, name is like it's so boring scene. it is kind of so creepy deep. but then it's just like thank god there's thank god there's bombs going off so this otherwise this might get awkward so the weird thing is you have this like motherly there's there's that motherly sort of thing where like at first she's just really annoyed that he's there mm-hmm. and then she actually like when he comes back it's interesting because she hangs up all of his stuff exactly where he had it, which is the first time I think he realizes that she actually pays attention to him. Mm. And he's not like a burden necessarily like he is, but like th- there's a little more to it than that. 
Right. She's come to feel for him as like a younger brother or a child or something like that. And in that scene, that's one of the best moments, I think, for communication, because you can tell just in that little moment where the guy takes his suitcase and she starts unpacking it and that there with no dialogue, it communicates that these people have come to care for Jim, Mm -hmm. despite his being super annoying as is displayed at many well, points. Well, I think like I, I still care. think the husband doesn't like him. Well, but maybe that's just maybe that's just the uh, the way that he pushes the bed back to the other side of the space, and it just like has that like horrible crunching sliding noise that it's like he is doing nothing to to dampen at all like he doesn't he just wants it to be that obtrusive yeah Um, and i mean i I think you guys know more about this being parents but i feel like in the situation where you have a forced adoption of someone a 13 to 14 year old boy is probably not what you're looking forward to adopting the most when you're like in an, in a small cramped setting with your wife, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, it's kind I think of he obvious. also knows that Jamie has a crush on Mrs. Victor. Yeah, definitely. Like, so there's probably that kind of annoyance there. Interesting. Cause I never saw it that way, but maybe I, I wasn't mean, paying that's attention. after, is that before or after he, he sees, he catches Jim that's watching after them. the creepies. Yeah. That's, that's after, after he catches Jim watching them. Because to me, the scene with Jim watching them, I saw as pretty innocent. Like, to me, that was just like, oh, yeah, that's a boy who's never had a sexual experience, who is feels like he gets to be a fly on the wall because you kind of get the feeling that they're not going to pay attention to him. There's freaking aircraft getting shot down yeah, outside. Yeah, but then the guy sees him and, like, they lock eyes for a minute, and that's when it gets creepy. Mm-hmm. That's when it gets and awkward. And then Jim's like, um... They bombed something. Run away. That was like, good plan. Good plan. Yeah, for sure. It's awkward. But I still, I don't know. I guess because he's in between being an adult and being in a child. I guess that's called an adolescent. I just don't think the dude took too kindly still, to it, is my point. Yeah, he's, Christian Bale's character still feels very innocent yes. in doing that. But the the Mr. Victor feels more aggressive and like mine about the whole thing. But then when um, Jim comes back, that seems to have changed at least a little bit, at least from my reading. I didn't think so. I thought she was much more amenable to Jim coming back than Mr. Victor was, but that was just my, my take on it. I did find it interesting. So like the, the, the culmination of this is that scene in, the the Citizen Kane Museum, where it just like pans over every opulent thing that we've seen through the rest of the movie. Um, it looks very much like the last shot of Citizen Kane. Um, so I'd be I'd be interested to see whether or not that was intentional. Um, but when he's feeding her water and she's like kissing it off of his palms. That was weird. It was weird. I feel like well, it was weird, like was but it was also to that yeah, scene. there was more to it, but it was also like um, I, I think that was where Jim probably would have loved that if she weren't dying. You know what I mean? And I don't think if she weren't dying, she would have done that. Agreed. So it felt like a, a moment where it's like, I don't know. It was just this kind of like, well, this may as well happen. Like we're abandoned in the middle of nowhere in this stadium full of the vestiges of old England. And, I'm not going to live to see the sun rise. So I'm just going to die next to this 
good-looking adolescent boy who's horny for me. And who cares about her? Nobody. Only him. Right. Maybe my gaydar is really not the best way to describe why I'm broken. Maybe I just suck at reading between the lines because, like, I didn't see any of this. I didn't. My see straight any- dar sucks also. Like, like I, just- I didn't see any of this sexual stuff other than just a young boy like being curious, and this being the woman that he has the most like physical access to. Access is the right word. Just he's around her, and he gets to yeah. see her intimate exposure. Relation- exposure. Thank you, and he's seen her intimate relationship again in a way that you normally wouldn't get the chance to do. Uh, I think I was reading some uh, quotes by JG Ballard and this was in reference to his mother since flirtation aside or or crushes aside. um, He had his mother and father in the camp, not uh, the victors who were made up. Um, And his comment was, uh, J.G. Ballard's comment about being in the camp was it made it f- it made things so much more intimate between me and my parents because before it was such a proper aristocratic British upbringing that if I caught my mom brushing her hair that would have been unusual like normally I only saw my mother like all done up and in a dress and ready to go out and same with my dad like he didn't see all of the like getting ready mundane stuff. They had servants. Someone was cooking. So it's like he had this detached relationship from his mother, but probably women at this point in his life because he didn't see any of that. And so he said that all of a sudden being in an intimate proximity with his mother where like if he was feeling lonely or sad, he could reach out and like touch his mother's hand like because they were in the same room basically 24-7 all the time. I, I saw it was really sweet and um I think that's what the author saw in that. So I don't know if that then got turned into a semi-adolescent, you know, flirtation story with this other character or what. But um it was just interesting to hear Ballard talk about this Again, to him, these positive changes that happened in his life from being in this camp. He says, two and a half of the best years of my life. You know, I made a lot of friends. I was sort of leader of the pack or in the middle of this pack of kids that we were running around and there were a hundred things to do every day. And we go over the wire and pick up a ball that had gone over. And I'm just like, man, this is kind of Camp Cupcake. I mean, honestly, like I'm not trying to lessen the plight of these people who died of tuberculosis and were obviously uh, very low on food. But if you had to put me in an internment camp, I'm going to this camp. Like, you know, and also in real life, the real camp was what is now Shanghai High School. So it was a building, an enclosed sheltered building that was a school. Mm. It was, I think at the time it was a college. And so they basically just took classrooms, built partitions with sheets, and then they were crowded for sure. But it wasn't even like shacks or a camp. The camp you see in the film is much more Spartan than the actual place where they're at, which leads me into something else about the film, which I thought was interesting because I was constantly, I think, you know, we talked about Grave of the Fireflies and sort of bombing cities. We had a little bit of that talk in our Facebook group offline. You know, Mike D'Angelo was sort of commenting on what things the American government did to lessen the impact of bombings even though they knew they were going to be bombing cities full of civilians, which again, in World War II is something that Germans, the British, basically everybody who had an air force was doing. And so in those situations, I always try my best 
even in World War II, where World War II, it's a lot easier to paint one side as the good guys and one side as the bad guys, right? It's a little more black and white than a lot of more modern conflicts in terms of who started the war, what were the reasons behind it, etc., right? Um, modern conflicts, the more you get to now, the harder it becomes to draw those lines and figure out who's good and who's bad here. So with the Japanese, I think it's a really mixed bag, especially because they were in several different places like a lot of other countries. And so, again, I've read just horrible things about invasions of Manchuria, the Philippines, Nanking, and the Japanese are on the record. And at the time, not being ashamed of a lot of really horrible things they did to civilians. You can read these accounts. I mean, famously, there was a couple of lieutenants, I think during sort of the colonialism in Manchuria, that were publicly having a head cutting contest to see how many heads they cut off. I can't remember at the time if it was civilians or soldiers, but it was like in the papers back home. They were publicizing this contest. And so it's always interesting in looking at Japanese culture and society from this period, because there's so many old and really respectable things about Japanese culture. You look into the Bushido code and the samurai and like all this really, really interesting stuff. But you get to this period of imperialism where like these horrific things are happening and you're like, holy shit. So my point being the lens through which you look at Japanese soldiers really depends on how much you've read about things and what you know. And this is soldiers in general, but we're talking about the Japanese in this case. So when I saw soldiers marching into the city and tanks and stuff starting to roll over cars, I was like, oh man, this is about to get dark. Like we're about yeah, to see this is some, going real bad, real We're fast. about to see some carnage here. Some people <clears throat> are going to get murdered and there's going to be all kinds of war crimes in here. And it was interesting that you never really see the film go there. Okay, so there's some Chinese dissidents that take pot shots at them and they kill them, but it's not gory or violent. In fact, I really think they only show you the Japanese soldiers pulling the bodies off the roofs. They don't even yeah, show Yeah, and they're them pulling dying. them out of pools of blood, but that's just... Right, they were killed, but they don't even show you the violence. Like, you don't even see right. them being killed. My point being, the violence is really minimal. And even in the camp, there's a few swings and a couple of beatings here and there, but you really don't see any atrocities or anything like that. And so in my mind, I had to start asking myself, I'm like, okay, so is this accurate or is this inaccurate? Like, is this camp just a place where, and from reading about the international settlement and where a lot of these people came from, it became kind of clear that the Japanese treated European civilians, especially like the Swiss um, that were in this neighborhood that, that Ballard was in, just a lot better than your average Chinese farmer. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, right. Well, these people have a lot of uh, privilege and a lot of power in that if Japan is seen to be, it's one thing to horrifically treat and abuse Chinese citizens who... Right. Poor people with no agency. Right. And you're directly at war with their government versus the Swiss, who were a neutral party quote-unquote neutral mm -hmm. party during world war ii and that's gonna earn you a lot of a lot more ill will that you don't have any um gradations of how you are treating people because you should never treat people like that obviously but they even the people who are willing to have headcount contests are going to see that that's not going to do well on the international stage when you're treating Swiss citizens like that who you are not. At right. War they with. still have some concern for public relations, especially 
Yeah. Yeah, especially at the beginning of the war. But So yeah. here's a question. The response to the Americans bombing the airfield in the movie is that as retribution, they come out and they break all the windows. Maybe I have a hard time divorcing myself from knowing that this is Steven Spielberg, who would then, like five years later, go on to make uh, the definitive Holocaust movie. But is that to be a callback to Crystal Knock kind of thing? Or is that something that they would have typically done as far as a, a piece of retribution was to go around and break all the windows in the camp? It seemed kind of random to me. Yeah, I I was trying to figure that out. Retribution too. wasn't unusual, honestly. Like that was that was because the airfield was not actually right outside the wire. No, from it was like the five miles place. away. I think. I think in reality, it might not have happened that way, but it was in the spirit of the thing. It wasn't unusual for uh, the Japanese to punish the prisoners for the actions of their side yeah that's for sure especially um escapees i think there may have been one escape from that camp um and definitely punishment for everybody else was common i know they cut rations i mean cutting rations was one easy way to punish people and boy i'll tell you having been in the military like there is no punishment like all of a sudden having to go without food for something you screwed up on Especially oh. when you're doing a lot of physical labor and that food is like really important. Um, yeah, that works really well. So I could, I mean, and that is one thing that's depicted a lot in this film is food and people's relationship to food. They talk about it. They're looking for it. The Gotta scene with the, the weevils. Yeah. The scene with the weevils is yeah, straight protein straight from Ballard's uh, memoir, I think, or, or the original story came from the memoir and he said that after a certain point, yeah, he was averaging like a hundred weevils uh, a day in his food or per meal. And his dad was basically like, yeah, if we need the protein, just eat them, you know, which is accurate, <laughs> uh, which makes sense. That's what you would do in a camp like that. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there was some retribution, but it's like, I don't know. I, I really got to look a little bit more into the history. Like, was a prisoner ever killed at this camp? Like, we don't know, but Spielberg decided to not show any of that. Um, and though they felt- do make reference to the fact that, um, the people who died while they were building the airstrip were then buried under the airstrip. You're right. They did. It was make like that they comment. built it right over them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's yeah. They did make that very casually. Accurate. Uh, Jamie makes that comment where you're just kind of like, well, well casually like- while he's flipping out. That's true. <laughs> it's a it's an offhanded comment in a moment of of right. uh, ecstatic hysteria where he's just like B fifty one, good luck in the sky. That was such yeah, that was such a weird thing for him to be yelling. Um, and yeah, I I, I did have a hard time like the scene you're talking about with the uh, with the zero where he's like rubbing all over it in the Japanese. I just I could not relate to his fascination for the Japanese. You think you'd have like some animosity towards the Japanese just from being in a prison camp, but he's like saluting them. And it's just like, man, if they had taken him up for the rock stars around, like it was for, for lack of a cricket team to root for. Like, I think that's how he saw the conflict between China and Japan was something that at least when he was living his life of luxury, it was something that was happening. Um, Maybe not for his, not for his benefit, but like it was something that he would do to pass the time. And he, yeah, you know, he, he loved planes and the Japanese had better planes. 
And I, and I wonder how much you can extrapolate his father's attitude to the other British there, but probably similar, where uh, at the beginning, Jamie asks him who's going to win the war. And his dad realizes what war he's talking about. He goes, oh, the Chinese? That's not our war. Like, don't worry about that. You know, we got to- But we at the same time, his, his dad does not take kindly to the uh, to the, the drunken racist at the party. That was a great quote. I love that quote. Yeah, someone makes a racial slur about uh, his Chinese. I think it was like he wasn't a servant. It was Chinese. He said, "Yeah, yeah," but he wasn't a servant. He was like, a, "No, he a, was one of the guests," and he was like, "Oh, right. he's inviting." Yeah, he's a he's inviting a Chinese. Essentially, is what he said, but with a worse word. And uh, the Chinese character says English humor, kind of trying to laugh it off, and he responds, "Scottish whiskey," which is such a great line. I really like that. It is. That's a great way to like shut down that. Not that the person that said it heard it, but it was like a good way to just sort of move on from the racism and be like, "That guy's a Mm -hmm. drunken idiot," basically, especially at that time. Um, While we have a second to pick out another couple of. Or I just have one moment I think that I wanted to pick out way at the beginning when they're putting Jamie to bed and the camera's kind of looking at the left side of the bed. Uh, it's brought up in the trivia, but you can see it a couple of times because there's a Norman Rockwell painting of kind of the same thing. Parents putting two kids to bed and and the, the father's holding a paper in his hand and you see it in the Norman Rockwell, which is hanging up on the wall in the camp. And then when uh, Miss Victor's putting it back up, she very prominently puts it back up and it's almost an identical reproduction in that scene, except that there's only one kid in the bed. I thought that was cool. Other film, Barry Lyndon is probably the most famous film that does this in terms of replicating actual works of art. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting, very quick thing that happens that I've never noticed in another film. But now that I'm doing a lot of audio editing, I'm noticing it. This is a video edit. And I'm not sure if it's intentional or if it's just a mistake. But at, at eight minutes and 44 seconds in the same exact scene... You can see the father kind of turning and they're mostly stationary. They're just kind of standing there. And then you see it go almost as if they cut and got back into position to finish the end of that scene. And no one's talking. So I have no idea why you would ever cut a scene at this point, because it would be awkward to set it back up and put them in the same place. But to not have a jarring skip where you see a character standing in one place and the next frame, they're like two inches over. There's a fade, like they added frames in between. And so you can see his father and probably his mother, like ghost an inch over during the scene for just like a quarter of a second. And I had to rewind it because I was like, did that really happen? I was like, oh, that really happened. So I don't know what kind of cut they were fixing there, but I thought it was an interesting bit of editing for anyone who's into technical stuff. I don't even know if that, that thing probably has a name for editors, but I'm not aware of it. I think the name is Sucks. Yeah, <laughs> not not subtle enough, I guess. Um, not in general, good. Yeah, in general with the editing, I did want to harken back to something you guys both referenced earlier, and it's that more so than in any other film that I could remember of recently, I feel like a lot of the characters were underdeveloped, but underdeveloped probably due to things being cut, not from them not being written properly. I just... And I can't mention a specific example right now, but I just feel like many of the side characters, you know, Frank and Max, they're very full characters with their own agency, but sometimes some of the dialogue and some of the scenes don't 
really make sense all the way and they feel underdeveloped. And again, it feels like it's because a lot of uh, several scenes for each character were just cut out of the film. I would not be surprised if Spielberg's initial cut of this was like four hours and then they just had to trim a bunch of fat. I'd be interested to watch in, in watching that once. Right. Just to like fill in some of those gaps, get the whole Mrs. Victor story. Um, But I have, I, I, I have a very strange relationship with director's cuts anyway. Mm. Um, But the, uh, but yeah, this is one that I wouldn't mind going back and just like watching and getting some of those, some of those characters a little bit more fleshed out just Mm -hmm. one or two times. One of the things is that Michael Kahn, who's the editor for this, it this was one of the few like really close to above the line items that was um, given an Oscar. Nom. This was nominated for best editing. Yeah, interesting. Yes, exactly. He was given the nomination for this, which nobody else on the high end got any, and but which I dispute that John Malkovich didn't deserve at least a nomination for supporting actor, but. The not the editing on this is so precise, and I I totally agree, Dan. There is definitely a ton of stuff left on the floor because having watched and critically reviewed a, a shit ton of films, there are times where you can feel that an actor is performing at their best. They are giving you this amazing moment and. You can feel like the cuts almost Mm -hmm. where their performance has been shaved down. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing them at their best moment, but you don't get to see like the beginning or the wrap up of it. And there is a lot of that in this film, in particular with like the victors, John Malkovich, the doctor. The doctor throwing like grabbing him and throwing him across the room seems a little unearned. Perhaps there was more there. Yes. Like, it feels like there's dialogue that was cut out. And I think my best guess, as someone who's watched a lot and studied this kind of stuff, is that Michael Kahn took, like you said, Dan, a four-hour film and chopped it down to make it two and a half hours, which at the time of release was like the longest film ever. Right. Like you, you didn't release movies in the 80s that were two and a half hours long. That was just unheard of. Man, I got to tell you, this whole conversation almost makes me want to talk about Thin Red Line. Oh, that sounds a lot. No. Oh, we <laughs> almost. will. We will eventually. Almost. Um, but point. I think it's mostly because I need to shit on something and I don't feel like shitting on this movie. So I'll just keep that in the keep that one in the back burner for when we do get around to doing Thin Red Line. Liam's like on a keep a I got tally of how, how long it's been since he shit on something. He's like, I think. It's oh, man, it's been way too long. Way too long. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we, next time. Who Maybe knows? Maybe next time. Well, this is the movie. I, this is the movie I'm going to shit on the most of the ones we've seen so far. <laughs> so. so with the editing, though, this does do uh, the the fucking Peter Jackson Return of the King bullshit where it like keeps fading to black for like three to four seconds. And I'm like, are we done? That's where you're going to end it. I thought the same thing over and over again. And I'm just like, Jesus. So real quick, normally I forget to bring up weapons and aircraft. And luckily we have Jeff and Peter who respectively in the, our Facebook group do danger close armory and danger close flight line, which is 
them using their incredible uh, knowledge and research skills to talk about the weaponry and vehicles that are in the movies. Lately, it's been aircraft. So usually they do a really good job of doing all this in detail. But when I do notice things, I figure it's good to throw them in here. Uh, One thing I thought was cool for anyone who's never been around planes that much, when the P-51 does the low pass and Jamie's on the rooftop and they're trying to really highlight this scene where it's like he could see the American pilot and the pilot's waving at him because that's how close he was, which I think happened to Ballard in real life, which I think why they made such a big deal out of this. Right before the scene, you can see the P-51 coming on from a distance and it rocks its wings like that. So that's Mm -hmm. a deliberate move. That is like a pilot waving. So, or if, if you've, feel like um like a truck driver when they honk their horn you know little kids ask them to do that or something aviation enthusiasts who wave at a plane sometimes a plane will wave back by rocking its wings um or to or to communicate in the affirmative sometimes they're answering a yes or no question like that but that's a real thing that's been in aviation a long time so he's literally waving at jamie right before he passes the other thing which is a question more for um Jeff and Peter specifically, but anybody else that knows what were they doing in some of those bombing runs? I mean, there's one (laughs) shot with the P-51 that's like, it's got to be like 10 feet off the ground and it is deliberately dropping two bombs that look like little tiny torpedoes almost to skip them across the pavement and like launch them into a hangar. And I was like, that seems extremely dangerous. Like, are those bombs designed to be used like that? Kind of like if you read a little bit about Dam Busters, how they were designing bombs to skip on the water. I have no idea. But when I saw that scene, I just wanted to ask someone else who knows a little bit about, more about aviation uh, in this time period. And then generally speaking, if you look at the trivia... So like in a lot of films, you often retrofit more modern aircraft to look like something else. The Japanese zeros in this are not authentic zeros. They're American built Harvard trainers um, modified to look like the zero. You see this a lot with um, ME 109s, the German fighters. I think they Harvard has their own air force. Oh God, they're coming for us. <laughs> Does Yale the intellectuals. know? Harvard air force. <laughs> but in general, the aviation effects in this film were really, really well done. And I know one of the B-29s was like an 18-foot model, so it's like a gigantic model that they used. Some some of the other scenes with fighters were done with radio-controlled models, and they point out when it's like, oh, this one doesn't have gear bay doors or bomb bay doors, and that's how you can tell. But honestly, the editing is so good, and the passes are so fast that I was looking for it too, and I never saw an aircraft in this that didn't convince me that it was like, the authentic aircraft or, or certainly an aircraft being flown in that situation by a real pilot. So kudos to the special effects teams. I thought the explosions look great. All the action that's always in the background. It's never, it's usually not really in a main foreground scene. Um, but I thought that was phenomenal. The way the film looked, they did a really good job. Of, I like of the that. guys, uh, the guy who like one of the few deaths that happens like right in front of him is the, uh, is during the Shanghai scene when, uh, that guy gets shot right in front of him and like the feathers come out, the down feathers come out of his, the, the bullet hole of his jacket as he like falls in front of him. I was like, that's a nice little, it's a nice touch. I really love this scene with, um, the pilot who's, who's flying that P 51 right next to, 
Jim uh, and when he's standing on top of the pagoda and yeah, and cheering them on, where you just see that little salute from him. And that was like, I knew it was coming. That's the weird thing. I was like, I know exactly what's going to happen here when they it's show. It's almost like you've seen a Spielberg movie before. <laughs> uh, or I've seen any movie before and any war movie. I mean, that was so, it was so like textbook. Like, but I, I since I was watching this for our podcast, I, I've been trying to pay closer attention to the aircraft and the the guns and all of that stuff. And I was like, that does look pretty good because I like. I assumed they didn't use original era bombers for that, but they really nailed it, even for someone who's not an expert on such things. It all felt so realistic while I was watching. Yeah, it. I mean, they. I think they mixed it up. Uh, we'll find out. I'm sure Peter will look into this. I'm I sure. think the close P-51 pass with the pilot waving, I think that's a real P-51. Like, th- there are plenty, especially wow. at that time. But the P-51 is one of the most beloved collectors uh warplanes from the era so there are okay. several well-maintained and still today flying p-51s so back in 87 that would have been just that much more the case now zeros you know i have it on good authority that that's the cadillac of the sky zeros <laughs> just because of the nature of the war they produced a lot fewer of them and on being on the losing side japan was just in a war of attrition so way more zeros got destroyed but they crashed a few of them too i think yeah, just a couple. Way more zeros got destroyed in the war. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes sense that it's hard to get an authentic zero in a film. Most of the time they're replacing them with something else. But nonetheless, moving on from planes, um, I think well, we should the close. the thing, one thing I wanted to talk about was I thought it was, this is just one Because I can't of those ever little- say we should close without yeah, the, no, next, you can't, well, the next you thing can't. being Liam fucking fighting me on it every goddamn time. Every go- <laughs> every We're on two hours, but it please is. go you ahead. Can, you can close this podcast when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. Um, <laughs> Tell us your tank story, the, Liam. I, Tell it's us. just one of those little details that I think it bears saying that I, I thought was pretty cool. But I, I, but it wasn't like rubbed in your face. Was they get out of their car because the car behind them is getting crushed by a tank and they can't drive the <gasps> yes. car forward. So they ditch the car assuming that the car is going to get crunched. But then we see it again at that fucking stadium. And you're like, if you had stayed in the car, what would life have been like? Because the car didn't have a scratch on it. It's just like one of those like weird little things that's like, huh. It feels like that's a lot of this movie, though. You know, and there was was a a thing that I was reading where uh, real life J.G. Ballard went, back to the house that he lived in after the war. And like, there were people living there, but he just sort of like walked right in and uh, everything was exactly how he left it. Like they hadn't changed anything in the house. So it's just like all of their old shit was there in the exact same spot and everything. It was just like a very strange sort of feeling that I, I feel like that, scene at the stadium was kind of, uh, uh, I mean, it was different, but it, it also sort of, after I heard that, I, I feel like that really sort of encapsulated that moment, especially when you see their car again with no problems. Right. 
And now you can close it. Go ahead. Take it away. I said my thing. I have Liam's permission. At the end of our podcast, we always like to ask two questions. Was the film successful at what it was going for? And did we like it? Personally, for me, I think it was 70-30 successful. I think Spielberg really does a great job of exploring this character. It's a gorgeous film. Like, every, it is almost Cecil B. DeMille level um, engrossing with how the shots in From the Streets in Shanghai to the final scene with him and his parents. Like, Spielberg does a great job with all of it, but in some ways, I feel like it does ring a little bit hollow. And I'll go back to what I talked about in the beginning, where some critics thought this was kind of a cold film. I can very much sympathize with those feelings because, especially for Spielberg, this feels kind of detached. And Spielberg is known for his very personal, intimate films when it comes to kids and situations like this. So I think it mostly succeeded. And did I like it? Yes, I liked it. It wasn't my favorite Spielberg. I think I put it to my husband as like, this is definitely top quality Spielberg, but not like top five. It's good, but it's not, you know, E.T. or Indiana Jones or something like that. It's very enjoyable to watch it in a certain way in that it gives you a very wide perspective on the war from this one child's viewpoint, a perspective that we don't often see. And it feels very natural and realistic. And I really appreciate that. And especially for someone who's creating this product as a, a white guy from America, a, a a Jewish white guy from America, to be clear, as opposed to a British man from back then, it still feels authentic and it still feels realistic and it's still very easy to get into and watch. And by the end, I felt like I understood this character's perspective. So I like it and I'd watch it again, which for someone who watches a ton of movies, it's a big compliment. So I'm really glad, at least, that we talked about it, because it had so much going on. There's a lot to like, I think, about this film. It's very competently made, and it is, like you said, Spielberg at almost the height of his powers. Um, I love John Williams. It's just there are some times where it kind of pulls me to, like, some of the recorders go off in a certain direction, or the flutes. And I'm like, oh, this is an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> like, like I, I didn't know this was John Williams. <laughs> and at the beginning, part of the score just totally gave it away. And I was like, I'll bet $1,000 on it that this is John Williams. And sure enough, it was when I looked it up. If it's Spielberg, it's John I know. Williams. And that's, I mean, I don't know who else that man And that's with. fine. I'm not sitting, I'm not going to sit here and criticize John Williams. I'm just man, saying. they better a, die at the same time. He has a very specific style that's pretty recognizable. So yeah, I think in terms of uh, the the cinematography, the set pieces, the production design is top notch. I mean, I really don't for a second question where I'm at, whether those tanks are real, whether the city streets are real. I know that at least some of it was filmed in Shanghai, so they did go on location to get probably some of those old original buildings from the colonial period. So the film looked great. Um, it fell short a little bit for me 
when we talked about these characters where there's, again, things that kind of seem undeserved or not fully fleshed out. But again, it seems like an issue of editing and cutting to me more than the writing or the acting because the acting's good. Christian Bale's character is kind of annoying, but again, like he plays it really well and I think uh, is following the script the way he should. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel like it could have been cut differently to show us a little bit, honestly, maybe even less of Jamie, but that's that's tough since it's J.G. Ballard's story. Um, So, yeah, for me, some of the issues were mostly in the editing and maybe some of the pacing. But overall, to try and show you a different side of World War II, which is you know, says a lot about Spielberg because he loved doing Saving Private Ryan and he loves the sort of, you know, he loves those more traditionally done theaters. Um, it was nice to see him go off the beaten path and do something that most Americans don't know that much about. And indeed, I had to do a lot of research just to look into it and understand what was going on in China and with the Japanese at the time. So I loved the setting and I thought that for World War II, it feels very different while it's still connected to events that we know about. Um so yeah, personally, I don't know. I liked it enough, certainly, to watch it for this show. Um, but prob- <laughs> We're going to watch way worse movies for this show at one point or another. Oh, sure. so many bad. Probably my least favorite in terms of just watching a film that we've done so far. Um, so I guess I'm... And also, I'm the guy who like likes everything, so I guess I'm just going to have to not check that box on this one. I was going to say, this is your version of shitting on something? Like, right? I got to take you to school, right? man. We'll, we'll get you shitting well, on things properly. you know, it's... I mean, it's hard when you're shitting on Spielberg. You got to... I don't know. I, I got to tread lightly because I... You got to back I like it up. The guy. I agree. Well, okay, I'll tell you what, because I've had a lot of conversations about James Cameron with my girlfriend, and, and like, I'm much more of a fan than she is, but she still can't throw out the baby with the bathwater because then it's like, she watches Titanic and she's like there's so many good things here even though there's a bunch of crap um or you know the terminator films where it's like there's things she hates but there's things she loves and it's like i see things like that that for different reasons i do see some similarities between cameron and spielberg again they have a different style but i definitely get that hand of the director feel in a lot of scenes again in a totally different way and so yeah, it's just impossible to divorce yourself from the fact that it's a Spielberg film. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with, I think it's successful, but I can see why it didn't do that well at the box office. And not one of my favorites, but I'm glad we watched it. Especially up against something like Bertolucci's Bertolucci. Yeah, it's Bertolucci. Bertolucci. Is that how you say it, Dan? Yeah, Bertolucci. Mm-hmm. Bertolucci. Um, Gorlami. Bonjour. Especially- <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Uh, the Last Emperor and Wall Street, which is still considered a classic to today. You know, this film had a hard row to hoe, is how I think of it, when you come out against all of those big contenders. Here's the thing about The Last Emperor, though. It's one of those movies that I still have been meaning to see and have never watched. Me neither. It's amazing. And, and more than that, Katie, you are, the, I swear to God, the first person I've ever met who has watched it. Really? That's so that's so terrible. Nobody gives a shit about The Last Emperor. Oh, it's I, so, I it's believe a it's movie. good. Like I see I see like uh, just a little snippet of it, like a little clip with no dialogue or anything, just like, you know, 
the emperor like looking at somebody and it's, it looks beautiful and I'd like to watch it at some point, but I'm always like, I don't know if today's the day I'm going to watch the last emperor. Like it could be, but if you don't close with your questions, I'm fucking ending this call. <laughs> You know, you'd act Liam. You can I, you and I can discuss the you'd last act emperor like after you were the one text. for whom it was after midnight, but it's me. All right, Liam, answer your two questions. This podcast is going to be the death of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, I think he, so. I got to tell you, I don't know why this movie was made. I'm glad it was made. I like it, but it, you know, it doesn't. I mean, as far as showing a theater of the war that we don't normally see, I love that, but we don't see enough of it to really like enlighten anybody except for like the experience of it being from a small boy's perspective. So like, I don't really know. I don't really know what they were going for. I really don't. I like it, but you know, it's, I I think it was JG Ballard wrote a book. Everybody liked the book. They wanted to make it into a movie and they did. Um, This was uh, perhaps one of the least successful cash grabs in cinema history, but like it was well done. So it's not just like purely mercenary, obviously, like people believed in it. But this movie really, you know, the the cinematography is great um, and some of the composition and some of the sequences are really gripping but this is a movie that rises or falls on the acting. And I think in that instance, it rises way more than it falls. The pacing is a little fucked. Like you feel every minute of that two and a half hours for the most part. Um, And that being said, they left a lot on the cutting room floor that could probably have filled in some of the, the gaps that we're feeling. But I don't think there's anybody except the people who got left on the cutting room floor that really wanted this movie to be longer. So um, I really like it. I I've grown up watching this movie and I watched it again for the podcast. And I will likely watch it again at some point down the road, Uh, probably show it to my kids and things like that. But it's also not one that I'm rushing to show my kids. Like they'll probably listen to it because they, or they'll probably watch it because they want to listen to the podcast. But um, so maybe I shouldn't cuss so much. However, <laughs> I doubt that's ever going to make a difference. I know it's not going to make a difference. Y- you, when you learn some editing, you can pull the episode and bleep your cuss words out and then play that for your kids. Have fun. I'm not going to fucking do that. <laughs> they know I cuss. Like, <clears throat> so yeah, that's where, that's where I come down on it is, uh, I like it. I don't need it, but I like it. And I love Christian Bale and I love John Malkovich. And he got that good credit, the introducing credit, which yes. is why Miranda yes. Richardson got second billing in this motherfucker. Like it's <laughs> like she got really high billing in this for not a lot of work that she put up on the screen there. Yeah, she she's not too big in it, but she definitely gets that. And ever since we've had these discussions about uh, about credits, I've been watching and I was like, I feel I feel like Christian Bale deserves an an introduce and he got it bale i still don't understand any of this shit but I'll, I'll keep asking dude he got that good credit that introducing credit that's this is one of the great introducing credits because this is a kid who went on to uh win an oscar and multiple, and will win at least one yeah, more, multiple golden least. globes multiple oscar nominations and uh yeah 
I've been inadvertently following his career all my life. All right. So if you want to hear the answer to the little musical trivia that I put out in Jojo Rabbit, stick around after the end music and I will give you the answer to that. But in the meantime, what are we doing next? Next time we are discussing Atonement, a 2007 film by Joe Wright, starring Kira Knightley, James McAvoy, and Brenda Blethyn, as well as Saoirse Ronan in one of her first big breakout roles. Can't wait for it. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I played some of this in the Jojo Rabbit episode once I was putting music in, but uh, in one of the scenes, I believe when uh, Rosie's dancing around with Jojo and they start at the table and then they move into uh, onto the floor, I think, and you're hearing Taboo by the Laquona Cuban Boys, which is an old song from the 20s or 30s. I think the lyrics are even a little problematic if you look into the Spanish, but it's a cool old school song. But I couldn't help but notice that the chorus really reminded me of something else that I'd heard, and I finally figured it out, and I went back and listened to the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, and there's a song on there by the Centurions called Comanche. that I think rips directly out of the musical uh, through line of this old song. So you guys will have to go back and listen to those and see if you catch the comparison or not. But it was really obvious to me and um, I'd never heard the old Taboo song. So it's always interesting to see how music uh, derives from other music and people sample things and get ideas from things. So awesome. Love it. Love to hear it. tidbit. Now I have to go watch Pulp Fiction again. Thanks. Oh, you have to? Yeah, we'll just pull up those tracks and compare them. Okay, so this is my tidbit for the end of the episode. I am not a Tarantino fan. Fair enough. I've got... That's okay. I'm I'm like... uh, I'm like 30% a Tarantino fan. Like, I loved Pulp Fiction. I loved Reservoir Dogs. I like Inglorious Bastards. I have some issues with it, but also the scenes that are well done, I think are fucking phenomenal. But beyond that, I'm not a Tarantino like fanboy or anything. For me, it's Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's his best in my mind. Jackie Brown sucks. Oh, Oh, Um, Liam. I like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And then he might as well have just died. (laughs) <laughs> until he did until oh, he did Unglorious Bastards. Oh, good. I like, won't be the most controversial on that one when dude, we do the, Unglorious Bastards. The, the Kill Bill uh the the Kill Bill movies are nigh unwatchable. And eh. yeah, that was my feeling just, on them is eh. They're just atrocious. I fucking loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, maybe we should do that on our Patreon. I know it has nothing to do with war movies, but an episode where Dan and I are both like, 
fuck that shit. That is terrible. And Liam is like, I love it. It's amazing. Sounds like the most fun thing ever. 